Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Alumni Connect, your source for the news, events, and research here at U of T's Department of Nutritional Sciences. My name is Rodney, and I will be your host for today. And joining me today is longtime friend, ex-lab mate. Goodness, I don't even know if I can count on two hands how long I've known you for. <laughs> and I certainly hope that she is an avid listener of the podcast. Now, if you have read the title of this podcast and you've been around our department long enough, I'm sure you know who this person is because she was a long-standing member of our alumni association, but now she is off to do bigger and better things. So with my totally unbiased excitement, I'd like to welcome friend of the podcast, Dr. Stephanie Nishi. Thank you so much, Rodney, for the kind introduction. And I wouldn't necessarily say bigger and better. It's just different. And both have been very exciting and very worthwhile. So Steph, for people who don't really know you, uh, could you please give yourself a brief introduction? So hi, my name's Steph. I was a graduate student with the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto, hence the connection with Ronnie, but we became fast friends ever since then. And I'm very grateful to all the other friends that I've got to make from the department and the people that, and researchers that I got to know. I did my master's work with Dr. David Jenkins and then went on to do a PhD with Dr. John Piper and the Toronto 3D team there. And from there, I'm now doing a postdoc in Spain with the PREDIMED group uh, led by Dr. Jordi Salas Salvador. So in brief, that's where I'm at at this moment. I mean, there's, there's a lot to digest. And I think today's podcast episode is really talking a bit about that postdoc journey, talking about some of the research that you've done. I think you've done a lot of very interesting research, especially in the field of nutrition, cardiometabolic disease. Uh, so it's something we could talk about today. But I do think um, of our listeners, they're, they'll be interested in the topics, but also interested in that career journey that you're sort of going through. Because right now you're in the early stages of your career, potentially going towards academia, right? You're doing a postdoc. Um, so for those who didn't really catch it, you know, Steph, you're doing a postdoc in Spain. Spain is, it's a faraway place. It's, there's a whole ocean separating us and Spain. Um, just to give you an idea, right now it is about 11.30 in the morning uh, during our recording. What time is it there for you, Steph? It's 5.30 p.m. here, so six-hour difference as long as there isn't daylight savings time. Now, do you find people start to eat dinner at 5.30 or do they eat later or earlier? What's it like in Spain? No, there is definitely some cultural differences when I moved here. Aside from the difference in language, there's differences in the times of day. So when I would say afternoon, that would mean something completely different to myself than when I was talking to somebody else. So when I said afternoon, I was meaning, oh, after 12, we can meet up and have our meeting then. They were thinking, oh, 5 p.m. That would be when the afternoon would be. 5 p.m.'s afternoon? Well, it's more so individuals are more likely have to have their lunch around 2 to 3 p.m. and then dinner around 9 p.m. here. So to me, those that was a little bit of a time shift because I was used to a little bit of a more earlier schedule. So that was one example of a cultural difference. There are many others. Is it true that they that they say, you know, um, in Spain, sometimes like there are these like long lunch breaks and people just take long lunches. Everyone goes out, they sort of relax and enjoy and they come back to work and they sort of work later into the day. You may be thinking of, I know 
um, traditionally people might think, oh, you have a siesta in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in the part of Spain that I'm in, they don't necessarily do the typical siesta. That's more for the south when it gets really, really hot and it gets too hot to potentially be able to properly focus during the day. Um, people do go for about an hour long lunch, um, depending um, on their work schedule, some individuals shorter, some maybe a little bit longer, depending on the day. So I find that aspect, at least with the group I'm working with, is relatively similar. But I do know that there's differences with this group compared to potentially others, just because of the type of work that's being conducted. Oh, that's great. It's good to know, because I, I don't really know. I've always heard these things about it. So, so Steph, you are now doing a postdoc. How long has it been since you started your postdoc in Spain? I started at the beginning of October of 2020, so right in the middle of the pandemic, I guess oh, you could geez. say. Oh, that was the height of the pandemic when you left. Mm-hmm. So that, I was very nervous, to be honest, um, especially taking a flight overseas at that time. I didn't know what to expect, and I'd never been to Spain before, so I didn't know what I was getting to myself into, but luckily I had a very supportive group that I was coming to join, so I'm very grateful for that. So you uh, have you spoken to any of your colleagues or any of your friends that are also going into academia? Do you know how different it was sort of going into a postdoc at the height of the pandemic? <laughs> hmm. I think going into any type of life, style change there's going to be differences and it's just figuring out okay how can I best adapt to this what sort of things do I need to be flexible in what sort of things do I need to think about in order to take for me I like to take precautions and plan things out but sometimes you can't always plan everything out so it's how do you balance that and so those were the types of things that was going through my mind at that time and I feel like for other individuals that have been in similar situations it's more just figuring out okay how can I best step into the position that I'm going into and how can I be as best prepared as I can be but also acknowledge that there are going to be things outside of my control and how do I deal with those things as they come up mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so now that you're, you're in a postdoc position now and there's been a lot of work that has been put into sort of getting there right so you know you laid the foundation here at the university of toronto you're doing your master's and your phd here so could do you want to talk a bit about the work that you've done here and sort of things that you think we might find interesting like i want to know more about your research what you've done i have an idea of what you do but i want the, the details the nitty-gritty of exactly what you've been doing um summarized for us so we can get an idea of like what topics you're interested in Sure. Well, it all start, started out many years ago. I was really interested in different dietary patterns and how nutrition can affect an individual's health and overall quality of life. And this came about after reading a book that my mom just had laid out and I picked it up one day and started reading and it actually mentioned research that was conducted by the Department of Nutritional Sciences in it while I was just starting my undergrad there. So I don't know whether this was brave or just who knows what, but I reached out to the researcher that they were speaking to and was very fortunate that Dr. David Jenkins and Dr. Cyril Kendall, they actually replied to my email. So that was a really big life-changing moment for me. Um, so I was able to start volunteering with the group and that's how I kind of got into nutritional sciences. 
And from there, I was able to, after my education and going into dietetics, I wanted to do a combined dietetics and master's. So Dr. Jenkins was very gracious and accepted me to be a master's student um, looking at nuts and cancer and nuts and cardiovascular disease. So that's how it all started out. Um, and from there, my interest and curiosity in the area grew, not just in nuts, but overall health and what are the different research methodologies that we can apply to address different types of questions that we have and how do we figure out what types of questions do we still need answered? So that's where it all kind of started. And then I was introduced to Dr. John Stephen Piper and systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And I knew that this was something that I really wanted to learn more about the methodology for, because I felt that it was one of those ways that we can delve even deeper and see, okay, what does the body of literature show on a topic? And what does that mean in terms of where the data lies or how it addresses questions? So from there, um, that kind of brought me to being a participant at different conferences. And it was at a conference, the DNSG conference, which is an annual conference, um, diabetes nutrition study group, I should say, um, that Dr. Kendall introduced me to Dr. Jordi Salas Salvador, who's my current postdoctoral supervisor. So it just kind of all came together. Nutrition is a small world. So um, it was very, um, I don't know how to say this, but unex not unexpected, but things that I would try, like you try for so many different things, but I'm very grateful that these things, they kind of came together and gave me the opportunity to meet these great people and learn from them and to be able to keep learning from them and keep getting to know more people through it. I mean, it's probably like all the right pieces fell in the right place, right? It doesn't always happen, um, but <laughs> there's many things where you feel like, oh my goodness, I'm putting so much effort into all these different things. Why can it not just work out? <laughs> but I was very, very lucky and fortunate that these things did work out for me at this time. So I'm very grateful so, for it. Before we continue, do you have a favorite nut pun? Because... <laughs> You know, you work with nuts, you must be hearing it all the time. Do you have a favorite pun for nuts? No, we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but people like to come and tell me them. Do you have one for me, Rodney? <laughs> I, I do not. I don't have one prepared. I thought you might have one. <laughs> um, so speaking about your graduate research, uh, so your work with John, uh, did it also focus on uh, nuts, in particular tree nuts from what I understand, right? Mm -hmm. And in that one, it was centered around and the outcome at that point was more for obesity as opposed to cancer and the other ones that you had done with Dr. Jenkins. Yes, exactly. So um, the line for that was, is a calorie a calorie? Because we've other research has shown that nuts have been associated with benefits to diabetes, cardiovascular disease and other health benefits, yet at the time that I started my PhD, there remained this concern that nuts may contribute to weight gain um, due to what was thought of as their high energy density and high fat content. So this was the question that we wanted to address because what was seen in clinical practices um, and even in public media was that there is kind of an aversion, not necessarily an aversion, but 
like hesitation to consume nuts because of this high fat content or always like a caveat to yes, consume nuts for all these health benefits, but at the same time, be careful because they have a high fat content. Don't eat too much of them. So people were getting these mixed messages. So this was the question we wanted to address was, does consuming nuts actually lead to weight gain? So we conducted two system, a systematic review and meta-analysis of both prospective cohort studies as well as randomized controlled trials. And we also investigated using data from a randomized controlled trial to look at the bioaccessibility of the energy content as well as the macronutrients of nuts. And overall, what we found was that at the amounts that were being consumed, so I believe it went up to 100 grams of nuts per day in the systematic review and meta-analysis findings, it did not lead to significant weight gain in those individuals compared to controls. Um, and what we found from the bioaccessibility analyses was that this may potentially because um, not all the energy from nuts was being absorbed for use in the body and some of the fat was being excreted by the body. So we may not be getting as many calories per se from nuts as one might think based on the calculations that you may see on nutrition facts tables. And this is something that seems like it's a very important topic because there's... Um... There's a sort of shift in terms of the obesity landscape to have mm -hmm. less of a focus on body weight, from my understanding, mm -hmm. and really to talk about being in a healthy health status, right? To not focus on the number on the scale, but instead to really focus on improving your cardiometabolic outcomes. You know, um, don't look at your body weight, right? Your body weight fluctuates. You, it doesn't really matter if you lose a kilo, you gain a kilo. It moves a lot um, throughout the day, throughout not throughout the day, but throughout the week, throughout the months. But really, there's been a focus on sort of like addressing and making sure um, your lipid profile looks good, right? Low LDL cholesterol. Um, uh, make sure your blood pressure isn't uh, is in check, mm -hmm. and you're not having you're not at risk for prehypertension. These sorts of things, and so I would have to guess based on what you were telling me that a lot of the evidence on nuts is actually quite positive for these types of cardiometabolic outcomes, right? And it's always just been that concern that nuts are energy dense; it's mostly fats and things like that. But from what I understand, they're healthy fats. They're they're generally mm -hmm. good for you, right? And so you're saying that a lot of the work that you've done is basically just showing that nuts are indeed healthy, at least so far, the, the threshold you're seeing, at least what we see is up to 100 grams. Are there studies that you know of where they consume even more nuts? And in terms of context, could, could you tell me how, how much is 100 nuts, 100 grams of nuts? Is it like two handfuls? Is it? It depends on the person because okay. hand sizes are very different, but about 75 grams is about what you could hold like in two hands. So about a third of a cup. It, so it would be a, roughly more than that. Um, one thing that I would like to point out, it's not saying eat nuts and only nuts every day. We want to have a variety of different foods, get nutrients from all sorts of different fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, those types of foods as well, because many different types of foods can provide us with the nutrients our body needs. It's just nuts can be one component that can provide us with what we see from the research, beneficial components or nuts as a whole food itself can have benefits for those lipid levels or other um, biometric um, outcomes that we look at in terms of health risk. 
So I believe um, Dr. Jenkins said in another podcast, um, not this one, but another one that he recently spoke on was that nuts were like a little bundle of like a, its own kind of health pill, though I don't want it to be thought of as a pill. It's, it's just saying that it does have all these beneficial nutrients, fiber, and other food components in it that we're not potentially using to its full um, potential at this time just because intake levels, at least over the past couple of decades, have been below the recommended intakes for the um, for heart health, or at least in terms of what could potentially be based on the literature. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting way to think about it, like a little, a little health pill. But I think just a word of caution, you should definitely chew your nuts and don't swallow them whole. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, they've shown that chewing nuts as well, the amount of chewing can impact how much is actually bioaccessible. So you could be missing out on some important nutrients too, potentially. I don't know the research on that. <laughs> so I guess the other thing, I, I do want to dwell on this topic just a little more. I think it's very fascinating because tree nuts, we don't focus a lot on single nutrition topics here, especially with a singular food or a singular type mm -hmm. of food. So I think it's very fascinating. So you looked at tree nuts, I suppose, right? Uh, mostly. Now, there is another one that people think about. Half the word is nuts, but it's not really nuts, just peanuts. <laughs> peanuts. peanuts are actually legumes. Mm -hmm. So did any of your research come across on peanuts as well? Is it similar or does it act differently than tree nuts, like the almonds, uh, the macadamia nuts and things like that? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when you see studies on mixed nuts, they include peanuts in them because they share a similar nutritional profile to other types of tree nuts, even though, as you mentioned, they're a legume and not technically a nut. So there is research showing that they potentially have similar aspects, but most of the research that I've seen in terms of the benefits for heart health are related to like almonds and walnuts. And oftentimes the you mentioned the fatty acids that are involved in them that potentially have benefits are the monounsaturated fatty acids and in walnuts, it's the alpha linoleic fatty acid. So the one last thing, mm -hmm. the one last thing about nuts before listeners go nuts. Hearing Fair about enough. This. There you go. You get your pun, pun, nut pun. pun. No. <laughs> um, so you spoke about how um, the nuts, and I don't know how much you know about this, but you did speak about how the nuts, they may not be as bio, um, there may be some of the energy that's being excreted. So my assumption would be that that is being excreted in the stool, right? Being mm -hmm. passed to the large intestine. Is there any evidence to suggest that these nuts are beneficially affecting our gut microbiota? Because that stool, you know, that that fat is going down into our large intestine where you have a lot of the bacteria, healthy bacteria and potentially even bad bacteria living in there. Um, so is there any evidence to suggest that it's really changing that profile over a longer term? And how is it affecting that? That's a really good question. And actually, I believe it was 2018, but don't quote me on this. There was a systematic review suggesting that nuts could potentially be a prebiotic. So a food component that helps the growth of beneficial bacteria in the GI tract. However, there was limited research at it at that time but I'm currently working with a student here. Um, and one of the projects that we're working on is looking at nuts in relation to cognitive health, but we're also looking at, does the microbiota, could it potentially act as a mediator in this process? Ooh, that sounds very interesting. And it's actually a perfect segue into talking about your current postdoctoral research work in Spain. 
But Steph, before we go on, we're going to have to continue the segment in our next podcast episode, just so that we don't take up too much time as we shift topics. So Steph, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your graduate work with us during your time here at U of T. You know, if anyone has any questions for you or just want to know more about what you're doing, where can we find you? Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know that this is how you heard about this so that I make sure to click, okay, yes, let's connect. On LinkedIn, I am Stephanie Nishi. Um, I'm also, I started the Twitter journey, who knows, but I'm giving it, giving it a shot. So I'm at Steph underscore Nishi, that's N-I-S-H-I. Uh, so feel free to connect with me there. I've been sharing updates from different um, conferences, research, um, even podcasts. So Rodney, make sure to let me know and I'll post it on there too. Oh, absolutely. So for our listeners, before we go, just a few housekeeping items to take care of, just like every episode. This podcast and the Alumni Association is proudly sponsored by the University of Toronto Affinity Partner in Manulife for supporting the student and alumni experience. Discover the benefits of Affinity products at uft.me forward slash DNSAA. That is uft.me forward slash DNSAA. Now, if you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, make sure to follow us on the platform that you are listening on so that you'll always know when a new episode is being released. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can always send us an email or reach out to us at our departmental website. And also, check out our YouTube channel, University of Toronto DNSAA, where we upload videos of lectures and panels that we have throughout the year. And finally, did you know, our department is on Twitter. It's not us, the Alumni Association, but if you are interested in seeing the latest news regarding our department in real time, give us a follow on Twitter at Nutrisci underscore UFT. That's Nutrisci, N-U-T-R-I-S-C-I underscore UFT. Thank you so much for listening today, and please make sure to join us on our next episode for part two of our chat with Steph, focusing on her postdoc journey.